Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, Head of Money and Markets. And I'm Sarah Coles, Head of Personal Finance. And it is nice to be here in the studio and away from home where there's always something to worry about. Yes, I mean, if it's not domestic dramas keeping us up at night, there are more existential worries about major threats facing the world, of course like walls deforestation and drilling for Arctic oil. In fact, I was in the Arctic in a place called Tromsø in northern Norway just a few weeks back, chairing a big geopolitical and environmental focus conference, Arctic Frontiers, examining just some of the threats facing the region. Yes, and if you ever worry you might be getting too much of a good night's sleep, I can recommend the World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report, in which about one in five of the experts reckon there's a global catastrophe looming in the next decade. What marvellous bedtime reading. (laughs) It's no wonder that these issues have come to occupy the minds of so many investors who are keen not to add to these risks by investing in companies who operate in these kinds of areas. And we wanted to explore this in more detail in this edition of the podcast, which we're calling How Deadly Are Sin Stocks? We'll be covering some of the basics on so-called sin stocks and explore just how investors feel about them. We'll be speaking to lead equity analyst Sophie Lundyates about some of the well-known listed companies operating in this area. And we'll also be talking to Alex Webster from Genie Drinks, who is capitalising on the trend away from what might be bad for us and the planet. He's built a business on the move away from alcoholic and high sugar drinks. So Alex, great to have you on the podcast. This is a booming industry, isn't it? Absolutely is, yes. Staggering fact recently, 39% of young adults under the age of 24 are now non-drinkers. Well, cheers, Alex. We look forward to hearing more about this a bit later in the podcast. We'll also be speaking to Helen Morrissey, our Head of Retirement Analysis, who will explore the role of SIN stocks in many retirement portfolios. Plus, Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis, will speak to Dominic Rolls, our lead ESG analyst, which is Environment, Social and Governance, about how the latest regulation supports investors to make informed decisions when it comes to sustainability. And she'll be looking at this from a fund manager perspective. She certainly will. So there is plenty to explore. Let's crack on. And we should start, I think, by breaking down what ESG actually means for investors. So, as Sarah's just pointed out, the acronym stands for Environment, Social and Governance. ESG is essentially a set of standards measuring a business's impact on people and the planet and how transparent and accountable it is. Now, there are a couple of ways that investors can tackle ESG. So, they might exclude any companies that they consider to fall short on one of these fronts. Now, this could include tobacco, defence, oil and gas, companies involved in deforestation, or apparel companies which don't have good records on workers' rights. Plus alcohol, gambling, cannabis, animal testing and corporate scandals. So the list could go on. Yes, and it's quite a list. The other approach is to include companies that an investor or fund manager considers to be making particular strides in positive ways. It might mean, for example, that a fund taking this approach might choose to invest in oil and gas companies that are doing an awful lot to switch to greener energy sources. Now, this kind of approach might also include engaging with companies in order to accelerate these things. 
And what's classed as ESG or not might evolve further. So nuclear energy is a case in point. Lots of ESG funds don't allow exposure to nuclear power generation assets, but nuclear power is also being considered in the pursuit of net zero. So in last year's budget, the UK Chancellor indicated the green framework would class nuclear power as environmentally sustainable, subject to consultation. So a reclassification could potentially enable nuclear power to have the same investment incentives as renewable energy. However, it would need a step change in attitudes as environmental and safety issues are still likely to be seen as outweighing zero emission credentials. So in this podcast, we're going to delve into some of these definitions and investment approaches and attitudes of investors. And we ran a survey among our clients asking which specific things they were most concerned about. We asked what they were most comfortable investing in and what they might invest in if they improved in future and what they definitely wouldn't invest in. So the real no-nos were deforestation, corporate scandals, tobacco, gambling and small arms, whereas the difficult sectors that people were most prepared to invest in were alcohol, nuclear energy, abortion, oil and gas and military contracting. So when you add together the numbers who are currently comfortable with investing in a sector with those who would be comfortable if things improved, you got different front runners with nuclear energy and oil and gas first, followed by alcohol and cannabis. I mean, it demonstrates how important it is for these companies to be on the front foot at a time when investors are considering their ESG credentials. And plenty of people do have this on their list when they're considering investing, although more recently things have been patchy. Yes, I mean, in the first half of 2022, $140 billion was pulled from non-ESG funds, but $120 billion flowed into ESG funds globally. We saw a gradual shift, however, in the aftermath of oil and gas stocks rallying due to the supply and demand dynamics created by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And there were outflows from ESG funds from September 2022. The oil price has cooled somewhat since the 2022 highs, but in 2023, it was propped up by OPEC cutting supply and then geopolitical issues, of course, in the Middle East. So, as we've discussed, not all ESG funds are exclusionary investments, that's those that avoid sin stocks, but those that do obviously suffer underperformance when energy stocks are rallying. And as a result, in November last year, £459 million was withdrawn from responsible investment funds, despite investors putting £1.1 billion into funds overall. This will wash through, however, and why ESG investments will see hot money ebb and flow. The insistence of regulators, governments and shareholders right across the globe that corporates consider planet and people alongside profit is going nowhere. And when you look at the overall figures, the significance of the sector is clear. It now makes up 7% of funds under management. So clearly ESG is top of mind for some investors and consumers, which is bound to have an impact on the companies involved in these so-called sin sectors. So this feels like a good time to bring in Sophie Lund-Yates. So Sophie, a classic sin stock category is alcohol. So what can you tell us about Diageo? Absolutely. So Diageo is the big player in the world of spirits, really. Now, if you're into your drinks, you might already know about some of their brands. So think Johnny Walker, Smirnoff, Guinness, just to name a few. Now, these heritage brands feed into an impressive track record. So Diageo has been around for quite some time and they've consistently shown strong performance. Their brands are iconic and have global appeal, which means they have a pretty strong revenue stream. 
demand is relatively reliable because, to put it bluntly, I mean, people love their drinks. So whether it's a glass of scotch after a long day or a refreshing cocktail on a night out... One interesting area is that Diageo has been tapping into the growing demand for premium spirits, which tend to have higher profit margins. Please remember, past performance doesn't give any guarantees for the future. And there is a lot around about people drinking less these days. It's something we're going to go into talk about a little bit more a bit later on the podcast. But how does this affect Diageo? Yeah, so there's definitely a bit of a shift happening and and some of that's covered by that so-called premiumization. So consumers being more discerning about what they're drinking. But then there's also big business in low and no alcohol options. Things like Guinness Zero are proving really popular and it's the strong brands that help these continue to sell. It's also worth noting that Diageo's exposure to emerging economies where traditional alcohol and more premium options have room for, for growth, really. One thing I would just caution is the performance has continued to be held back um, by its Latin American and Caribbean or LAC region. And here sales have been much weaker than originally anticipated. um, And this could drive sentiment in the short term. Now, we can't really talk sin stocks without touching on tobacco. So who's in the spotlight? All right, let's um, delve into British American tobacco or BATS, which is one of the giants in the tobacco industry. Now, I, of course, have to mention that tobacco might not be everyone's cup of tea. But from an investment perspective, BATS has some interesting points to consider for those that want to. One of those elements is BATS' ability to generate cash flow, which has supported consistent dividend payments over past years. Now, let's address the elephant in the room, and it's a big one. Smoking rates are thankfully declining. Now, obviously, from a business perspective, this isn't ideal, but revenue is being propped up by price increases. BATS has also been diversifying their portfolio, venturing into next generation products like e-cigarettes and heated tobacco devices, which could potentially offset the decline in traditional cigarette sales in the fullness of time. Now, what I would say is we're some way off that being the main event. And I'd also flag regulatory risk as something to monitor. You know, we've seen it with clampdowns on menthol cigarettes and there are lots of conversations going on about the future of alternatives like vaping. The company itself has called out the trade in illicit disposable devices as an immediate concern. And there's no certainty that enforcement will improve. You know, I'd say that it's too early to call how the long-term profitability of these products will compare to traditional products as well. Now, this could undermine BATS' attractive operating margins. And Sophie, what is the final name you have for us this week? So defence is a really interesting one to discuss through the lens of SIN stock. So I'm going to talk about BAE Systems. There are, of course, still individuals and larger vehicles that can't or won't invest in the sector But attitudes have changed slightly in the wake of the conflict in Ukraine. You know, there's this renewed awareness that developed economies need well-serviced lines of defence. Now, one thing from an investment perspective that's good about BAE is there aren't many companies that can do what it does. So that's manufacturing heavy-duty military equipment like fighter jets and aircraft carriers. That helps protect market share And high-quality government contracts give years' worth of revenue visibility. The other thing to mention is there's also the mammoth $5.55 billion acquisition of Ball Aerospace. Now, it looks like a good fit to us and displays serious intent to build out its in-space capability and relationships within the US intelligence community. The deal is expected to be settled in the first half of 2024 and will be funded by new debt and cash on hand. Now, BAE 
PPE is a brilliant business, but the valuation has come up quite a bit, which increases the likelihood of ups and downs. So keep that in mind. Thank you very much, Sophie. Plenty to keep a watch on in the coming months. Now, one of the striking features of so-called sin stocks is some of them will often make up part of the portfolios of retirees, whether they make an active choice or whether as part of an income fund. So this feels like a good time to bring in Helen Morrissey to explore some of the issues facing retirees. So, Helen, what issues do people need to think about when it comes to sin stocks and their retirement? Thanks, Sarah. So if you have a pension, then you have a lot more power than you might think. Pension schemes are some of the world's biggest investors, and this means a big final salary pension funds and providers have serious clout when it comes to pushing for change around big companies' approach to key issues such as climate change. Recently, we've seen a number of pension schemes and providers call on Shell to do more around its climate change strategy. Looking more globally, we've seen one of the big Dutch pension funds going a step further and selling almost all of its holdings in fossil fuel companies due to what it described as a lack of credible climate action strategy. That's really interesting. So how much awareness do you think that people have about what they're invested in and also their power to change things? So it is a challenge, to be honest. Um, First of all, many people don't recognise that pensions are actually an investment. Uh, Recent research that we did showed that only 35% of people realised their pensions were invested in the stock market. And if they don't know their pension is invested to begin with, they won't know what they're invested in. So what can people do to find out more about what they're invested in? You can speak to either your pension scheme or provider and they can tell you what your pension is invested in. If you're in a final salary scheme, then your employer should be able to tell you about where the scheme is invested and what their approach is to areas such as climate change. Some schemes will adopt an approach where they choose to engage with a company to drive change, whereas others will choose to divest and not invest in certain areas at all. So if you have concerns about where you're invested in certain areas, then you can find out more by speaking to your employer. And what about, Helen, if you're in a defined contribution scheme? I mean, is that different and in what way? If you're in a defined contribution scheme, then you can speak to your provider or go online to find out what you're invested in. Most people in a workplace DC pension scheme will be invested in what is known as the default fund, which is chosen because it is seen as meeting the needs of most people. You will be able to download fund fact sheets that will tell you where you are invested. There should also be information around whether the fund manager chooses to engage actively with companies or not, so you can make sure that you're comfortable with their approach. If you aren't, then your provider will likely be able to offer you a range of alternative options and you can research whether you can invest in a way that better reflects your values. So this is clearly something for older investors to consider, but they're not alone. Younger investors are particularly concerned about some ESG issues. A survey of HL clients showed that nearly half of 18 to 29-year-olds see climate change as extremely important when it comes to making investment decisions and therefore don't want to invest in fossil fuels. It reflects trends among some consumers away from the so-called sin sectors. And of course, when a market changes, there are clearly some opportunities too – And one of those is in the drinks market, where Alex Webster has established Genie Drinks, as we were hearing a little earlier. So, Alex, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Just tell us how Genie Drinks came about. 
Well, like all great things, it started in a pub garden. A conversation between myself and a friend. You know, we'd had a beer, but we didn't want another one. And to be honest, we looked at the menu of soft drinks and we were like underwhelmed, seriously underwhelmed. We just didn't see anything there that was particularly modern or talking to us as younger consumers. I saw young, I mean, I was mid-30s at the time. So I think we had a, a water and got, got up and left. At that precise moment, we thought there's got to be something that appeals to us that we would like to have now, you know, as an adult soft drink. There are, though, quite a few non-alcoholic cocktails around now, but they come at a higher price point. For example, I'm quite a fan of the Virgin Bloody Mary, but you end up paying almost as much as the alcoholic version, sometimes exactly the same. What's your price point like? We're sort of in between classic softs and beer, so we're kind of more like a three ninety five for a can of our drinks in the on-trade, in, in, in a pub. I suppose we call ourselves affordable premium, so that's kind of where we sit. So, Alex, what does uh, Genie offer then that stands out, would you say, on the menu? Well, delicious flavours. We've won eight great taste awards since we started. We started with kombucha. There's a flavour profile with kombucha. It's it's a little bit tart and i.e. not too sweet. And I think a lot of adults, when we do sampling, they say, oh, finally a soft drink that isn't too sweet. And I think that's the, the key when it comes to, to menus. And I think our dry apple delicious very like a non-outsider if you like the blueberry and raspberry is a really popular flavor um especially in the on trade and it's just it's just a people love a berry flavor then and that's flying out and and our foray ginger is delicious if you like ginger it's just a really lovely drink i mean i would say that but <laughs> but we sell a lot of these drinks so which is the buzz word of the moment what's so special about this particular ingredient would you say well the fermentation process gives it this strong flavour profile, which I think traditionally you would have used artificial things to create that flavour profile. You don't need to do that anymore. So that's the fermentation which gives it the, the fermented tea, which is a bit of a red herring, doesn't taste like tea at all. But that process, you are fermenting tea, gives it a strong flavour profile, a little tart. And obviously that process is also creates acids and good things for your microbiome. So it's kind of win-win, you know, enjoying a delicious drink and nourishing your microbiome at the same time. So you talked a little bit about some of the reasons why you might not particularly want to, to have an alcoholic drink. You might be looking for an adult soft drink. So, you know, things like driving and, you know, saving yourself for a big day the next day. But I mean, are you finding then that this is actually a trend towards more people who are choosing not to drink? Well, absolutely. That pub garden drink was 2017. The world has changed even faster since then. I think COVID helped focus the mind. Everyone was far more aware of what they consume now. Then a recent survey published in January this year, 2024, by the Portman Group, um, carried out by YouGov, um, shows that 24% of the over 55 said they did not drink. The same study also confirms that Britain is drinking 15% less than 15 years ago. So consumers changing. And presumably it's a bit of a virtuous circle that, you know, once you have nicer alternative drinks, you have more people who are not drinking and then that sort of expands the market for nicer alternative drinks. So it's kind of working, you know, sort of steps towards making the market a better place for you to be operating in. Well, all the famous brands out there, all the alcoholic famous brands, um, realised that the demand was growing for non-out versions of themselves. So they've all created non-out versions of themselves since then. That's really helped, I think. The pricing is a funny one because they've all kept the same price as previously. What are the challenges you face, though, at the moment? Because, of course, we've had cost of living headwinds swirling. You say you're affordable premium, but Mm. simply a lot of people probably can't afford those prices. Is that is that a challenge going forward and how are you dealing with it? 
We've faced many challenges since we started, to be fair, you know, COVID, supply chain chaos. You know, I think that we've always set out to be as affordable as possible. You know, we've always priced our drinks as best we can. We're scaling up and when you scale, you make savings as you scale. And that has enabled us to keep our price as low as possible. We're proud of where we got to in terms of pricing and we, we match global brands actually so i think from genie's perspective we are pleased with where we are and actually genie was set up to democratize our type of drink you know it was very popular on planet london and we wanted to expand it outside of london and the only way to do that is to make it affordable for everyone to enjoy you know and that goes back to the brand as well we're trying to make it welcoming and fun and engaging one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the sort of sugar side of things, because I know particularly from well, for my teenagers, for example, that sugar is the new evil. I mean, is, mm. is that something that's at the centre of your brand as well? Yes, we set up at the time to kind of make sure we didn't have too much sugar. There is sugar at the beginning when you ferment things. So we're not completely no sugar, but we're non-HFS, which is non-high fat sugar salt content. We have a very short ingredients list and obviously no preservatives. There's no other nasties in our drinks at all. Thanks, Alex. It's certainly a growth area and it will be interesting to see how some of the big alcohol brands respond to this challenge. Now, this is an area where companies have plenty of responsibilities, including the need to disclose how they're doing on sustainability criteria. So Emma Wall has been speaking to HL lead ESG analyst Dominic Rolls. Thanks, Susanna. Yes, the regulator has recognised that sustainable investing can be confusing. Some have even called it alphabet soup. So after lengthy consultation with the financial services industry, including ourselves, they have launched the catchily named FCA Sustainability Disclosure Requirements. Here to discuss SDR with me is Dominic Rolls, who leads HL's in-house ESG analysis team. So Dom... What are the new sustainability disclosure requirements and what do they mean for investors? Hi, Emma. So currently it's quite difficult for investors to identify sustainable funds and it's even more difficult for them to be sure that the fund is really doing what it says on the tin. So the government's sustainability disclosure requirements aim to address that problem. They'll require sustainable funds to use one of four labels. Sustainability focus is the first label. Sustainability focus funds will invest mainly in companies that are sustainable for people and planet. So those companies will have to meet a robust standard for sustainability, which will be decided by the fund manager. So, for example, they might contribute to a UN sustainable development goal or something like that. The second label is sustainability improvers. So these funds will invest mainly in companies that you might not see as sustainable today, but they have a clear path to improvement. The fund manager might engage with those companies over time as well to help make sure that they stay on that improvement trajectory. The third label is sustainability impact. So sustainability impact funds will invest mainly in companies that provide solutions to environmental or social problems. And they'll generally measure and report back to investors on the real world impact that they have. And then finally, you've got the sustainability mixed goals label which applies to funds that invest across two or more of the sustainability categories that I just described. So the criteria that funds have to meet to have a label are very rigid. So uh, fund managers must, for example, have KPIs or key performance indicators to underpin the approach that they say they're taking. The fund must have a sustainability-related objective that sits alongside its financial objective. And finally, funds must make certain disclosures about uh, their sustainability credentials available to investors. 
Thanks, Dom. A really comprehensive overview there. So when will these regulations come into force? Yeah, so you'll, you'll start to see funds using the labels from the end of July 2024. And of course, where they do, we'll make that clear on the uh, platform for HR clients. Great. Thanks, Dom. Now I want to bring in Fadi Zahir from Legal and General Investment Management, a fund group that we rank highly on sustainability metrics about their approach to ESG investing. Hello, Fadi. So we're talking today about so-called sin stocks, different sectors, perhaps more important than others to different people. But typically here we're talking about weapons manufacturers, alcohol, animal testing, tobacco, oil and gas, you know, fossil fuels. I'd be really interested to hear what Elgem's approach to these so-called sin stocks are, and in particular, your future world range that really focuses on environmental, social and governance integration. Well, uh, thank you for having me, Emma. The concept, as you described, the sin stock, is a quite broad definition. Uh, but specifically, Elgin works with minimum standards, typically when it comes to, for example, exclusions in, in the way we invest in, in, in funds or not investing, avoiding investing in companies. We focus on typically companies that are involved in production of coal uh, that generate a substantial revenues from, say, coal production or even to just generate electricity, we tend to focus on companies that uh, are involved in our substantial revenues come from weapon, firearms, as an example. And we tend to also adopt a quite universal concept known as the United Nations Global Compact, which in itself might have some form of sin stocks, but it's not necessarily specific to that because, as you know, sin stocks is very much related to activity that is either considered unethical or immoral or linked to <coughs> a belief, in fact. But the UNGC focuses on 10 principles looking at human rights, labors, and environmental uh, questions. The future world really capture a range of exclusions that meets the Elgin's minimum standard, but also in some, some cases also that meets Hargreaves' minimum standards. So that's really when it comes to the kind of exclusions. But actually, very importantly, the future world take a step further than just excluding companies. We actually shift capital toward companies that are also making meaningful progress on the different environmental, social standards or practices. And what about the stuff in the middle? Because I think this is a really important point. So it sounds like you screen out the nastiest of the nasties and you positively weight towards those that you think are doing really well against environmental, social and governance factors. What about the stuff in the middle, the stuff that could do better? Because this is a really meaty topic for people who care about ESG it's it's the engagement point, is it? How do you make that stuff in the middle better? It is a process here. The concept is that you remove these stocks. They're supposed to be a quite few percentage of the global benchmarks or, or the global markets. So actually, when you remove them, you do have an impact on the portfolios, but you don't necessarily alter the investment risk or return profile. So we tilt on companies that has a positive, say, for example, ESG credentials. But then at the end of the process, what we do every year, we do have a something we call climate impact pledge, which is the engagement. We typically engage with companies globally, and there is a specific framework for it. And then eventually we work with companies on different ESG or environmental and social practices. And then companies have some time to address this. And then that kind of feeds back into the fund 
And so we have the ability to exclude companies that fails in engagement or changing behaviors. And that's what we refer to as the kind of climate impact pledge, which is part of LGIM's uh, future world processes. Presumably allocating more capital towards those companies that are doing better on these metrics and then engaging on those that aren't does make a difference, surely. Yeah, it does actually. And uh, we have over the years seen improvements and we have seen actually companies are willing to make a difference. You have to remember the whole future world concept and generally the more transparent you are, the easier it is for investee companies to actually drive the change. So if you take, for example, a few areas that where we have seen an important change is where we use something called ESG scores. I don't want to go too technical about it, but we kind of rate companies based on how good they are on these different uh, minimum standards, environmental standards or social standards. So we score these companies globally and we score tens of thousands of companies, I think over 15,000 companies. So we are able to disclose the scores and where companies are strong at and where they are falling short. So companies can actually address these changes. We have taken it one step further, which is the climate impact pledge. We tend to also vote in the AGMs. We tend to raise our voice in the AGMs as well with respect to things that we want to do. And we have actually seen global companies working on some of these issues that we have addressed to them. So actually engagement does work uh, as a part of the process, but it takes time to see that coming through. So we have seen companies with a poor ESG scores, say a few years ago, we have seen improvements across majority of their metrics, say three, four years later. I suppose it's important to say that good environmental, social and governance metrics doesn't guarantee better performance, but it does at least allow investors, if these are the things that they care about, to align their money with their values, hopefully with that transparency. Absolutely. So in generally, I mean, the Future World family, one of their core objective is to provide a market risk return profile, meaning that if we are talking about tracking global markets, how the global stock market is doing or the global bond market is doing, that's kind of what the future world is delivering. It delivers a market risk return profile, but are trying to address the ESG minimum standards and market-wide themes that we engage on. So in principle, investors don't tend to deviate too much from what you expect to see in terms of performance in the market, but still achieving that impact on the environmental and social aspects. Fadi, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was Emma Wall talking to Fadi Zaha from Legal and General Investment Management. And please do bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And before we go, there's time for a quick stat of the week, your favourite part of the week, Sarah. And for this, we're going to go back to that cheery World Economic Forum report, which is your bedtime reading, clearly. It found that the biggest risk over the next couple of years was misinformation and disinformation, followed by extreme weather events and societal polarisation. And that's not just in your house, but within a decade. Environmental concerns will take the lead, dominating the top four. Technology risks also make an appearance in the top ten. But which one do you think is considered the biggest risk? Is it cybersecurity, the negative impacts of AI, or misinformation and disinformation? Oh, I think they're all quite worrying. Uh, But it has to be AI, because that's what 
everybody's worrying about, particularly, I, I think, particularly if they start producing podcasts. <laughs> Absolutely. It's what we're worried about. That can't be far off. But anyway, the answer is actually misinformation and disinformation, which is presumably only going to get more common with the advent of AI. That's brilliant. There's plenty of reasons now for me not to be able to get to sleep at night. That's quite aside from waiting up for the teens to get home and then being given a lot of misinformation when they do return. Anyway, that's all from us for now. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 19th of February 2024 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance is not a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Alex, Helen, Dominic, Sophie, Emma, Fadi, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>